Hello and welcome to Dr. What Now with me, Zoe Valbray, and me, Ines Pinheiro. This is the show that explores the exciting world of post PhD careers in life sciences. Each episode, we chat to a special guest who has left academia and successfully transitioned to a different career path. We hope that these career insights can help you see what opportunities are out there after your PhD. Before we start, you can find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram with the handle at doctor underscore what now and on our website www.drwhatnow.com. And now let's jump into this episode. Today, our guest is Ezequiel Miron. Ezequiel was born in Argentina before moving to the UK at the age of 11. He studied his bachelor's in biochemistry at Imperial College London with a minor in entrepreneurship. Then he did his PhD at the University of Oxford, focusing on 3D genome organization using super resolution microscopy. After completing his PhD, Ezekiel moved to Amsterdam to do a four-year postdoc at the Netherlands Cancer Institute, where he worked on genomic engineering. And as well, during this time, he took part in a startup incubator for postdocs and co-founded a startup called Gut Feeling for monitoring gut health in IBS sufferers. And now, as well as being a Bitcoin consultant on the side, Ezekiel works at Nikon Healthcare headquarters in Amsterdam, where he is European product manager of high-end microscopy. So thanks for coming on the podcast and nice to see you. Thank you for having me. Um, so yeah, as you know from our conversations before this, uh, the podcast is aimed at PhD students and people who've done a PhD and are looking or uh, interested in careers outside that. So I thought it would be nice to start the interview talking about your PhD. So you did your PhD at the University of Oxford in the lab of Lothar Schemelli. Yeah. And uh, you went straight from undergrad to PhD, right? Oh, God, yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah, I didn't do a master's in the middle. I uh, honestly don't know how I made that jump, uh, how I got it or how I survived it. Um, yeah, I mean, in, in all honesty, I just saw the title. It had super resolution microscopy. I thought it's it has super in the title. I mean, it's going to be great. <laughs> Started doing a, a super resolution microscopy PhD with basically having no microscopy background <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that sounds like a pretty big leap but how was your how was your PhD experience once you got there and got started I mean because I didn't do a master's I, I guess the first year was just me bashing myself against every wall that you could encounter right like just not knowing how to do proper microscopy and having basically a, a condensed master's in some optics, microscopy, physics, that, that's how I, I got started. Then in my second year, it was more of the biology, let's say. Like I've nailed down the the microscopy and the optics part. Now, what was I doing again? Oh yeah, genome regulation. So I, I should probably think about uh, what can I test, uh, formulate my ideas. And so with those ideas, it's okay, what can I, what can I test? And then during the third year is where I basically acquired most of the images that would become the bulk of my data. I mean, these this were very long nights at the microscope because I, I, I was such a microscopy heavy uh, PhD that I, I had to do thousands of acquisitions and 
Yeah. So I would just book the mic. I couldn't book the microscope all day because I, this was part of the facility at Micron, uh, the, in the biochemistry department at Oxford. They have some really nice equipment. So then I had to book at night. So I took the graveyard shift uh, for weeks at a time, uh, going up uh, into Oxford city center, getting a late night McDonald's, <laughs> late night, late night, early morning, some some dawn McDonald's, and then going back to the lab until like uh, I don't know four in the morning. That's probably so, a strange mix at McDonald's in Oxford at uh, four a.m. or two a.m. of a. Uh, people clubbers and uh for PhDs sure. going back to the microscope for sure yeah exactly um and then i think somewhere around my third year is where i realized i've acquired a lot of images and i have no idea what to do with them because uh i forgot about the other part which would be how do i turn images to data and data analysis mm -hmm. so at that point there was uh, another guy uh who was um, working at the facility and he became actually just naturally my mentor as, as I basically mm. began to, I, I, I started to bother him uh, yeah. continuously about, okay, so how do I do this? How do I do that? And, uh, but I got to a point where I basically began to bother him so much that I had a chat with my other two mentors and I said, even though his facility, uh, he's not technically, let's say, a professor or whatever, uh -huh. is, is, is it still doable or possible to include him. I think it, it makes sense at this point. So then in the end, I ended up with three, um, three mentors, uh, one for each part, let's say. Yeah, it sounds like you, you use your initiative, though, picking people, picking mentors, um, using the people around you to learn as much as possible. Um, so would you say those are the, the skills or, or what other skills would you say you learn from your PhD? So microscopy, image analysis, so the technical skills, yes, but I mean, I learned so many more things from, I became a, a much different person or a better equipped person from when I finished my undergrad. You finished your undergrad, I finished my undergrad with a lot of head knowledge about biochemistry and about how things work and the central dogmas of life, but uh, really about how do how do you then communicate with a room full of professors? How do you communicate with a room full of PhD students who are in other disciplines? Uh, we also had outreach, which I enjoyed a lot. I was part of the uh, uh, biochemistry micron outreach. So I actually used my technical knowledge at that point to build uh, 3D models. So I took the 3D data from my microscopy and turn it into CAD models which could then be 3D printed. So I, we printed out uh, nuclei and nuclear pores. Oh, cool. Um, which were, I mean, to me, that was a highlight of some of the outreach because we, we, got some, um, we got some blind people along. This was open to the public. And so they were able to actually just, you know, have it in their hands and, and understand what we were talking about. So I think that the communication and kind of uh, shifting how you communicate, depending on your audience, um, I think all PhDs go through perseverance. I mean, you you, you have to you have, things go wrong, experiments fail, fail again, fail again, fail again. Yeah, for I whatever. feel that. <laughs> you know, you know what I'm talking about. I feel about. that. <laughs> so perseverance is a key part. Um, does that make a good list of of things that I picked up along the way? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that that's also an important point because when we're sort of 
head deep in our PhDs, then it feels like the technical side is the most dominating. But then it's important to remember these other parts like communication, like public speaking and yeah, resourcefulness and um, perseverance that that will be useful in the future. I think sure. the tech, you know, the technical side, if you if even if you think you're doing a postdoc afterwards or if you want to go to industry, <clears throat> by the time you're already one, two years into your PhD, you're hitting, I think, diminishing returns. I mean, there's only so much pipetting you can perfect or, uh, you know, uh, managing an experiment or you're already at the top of your game in terms of doing that well. When you get to a postdoc or even if you go to industry in a lab, you'll pretty much be doing almost that to that standard. Really, you've got to think about, actually, if I want to, you know, do a postdoc or whatever else, I need to get other people. I mean, I need to get my research across. I need, I'm going to need grants or there'll be a product that I have to uh, launch and research. We can talk about this more about my role later on, but the communication part and the people part becomes more important. And I think a PhD is a really good time, low stakes, where um, you can practice a lot. And every time you communicate, every time you have to do a, a talk against, uh, you know, in front of 10 people or 20 people or 300 people, you you, you go up a level quite a, quite a bit. Mm -hmm. um, at least that's my experience. So definitely focus on, on the bigger picture. Yeah, sometimes we have to take ourselves out of our specialist subject and think about the big picture. Yeah. Um, but yeah, let's talk about like your transition from PhD to the next steps. What were you thinking? Like, how did you decide as you were coming towards the PhD, the end of your PhD, what you would do next? At the end of my PhD, I was, let's say, 80-20 split between wanting to continue in academia and 20 thinking about other possibilities so i was actually looking at some market makers and um, uh, high frequency transaction firms and all of these things because okay. they were looking they're looking for smart people who are good at maths and can program um, and can understand complex data basically and you mm -hmm. just transfer all of that that all of those skills into something that's completely different but at the end of the day it's just numbers on a giant matri giant matrices of numbers mm -hmm. but in the end um still i was 80 percent more on the side of ah, you know i i still would like to start something myself i would like my own lab um i would like to to be a cool uh, professor at some point so again in the back of my mind it's like how do you get there okay uh, next step is a it's a it's a postdoc and i thought and i found uh, i i was following a lab um, at several conferences, I proactively, on purpose, kind of snuck up next to the PI and joined the conversations and pretended to know like what he was talking about. <laughs> uh, you know, I just said hello a few times. So I was in his radar and I saw a, an opening in his lab. So I said, hey, hi, um, we met a few times. Uh, I don't know if you remember. Uh, wink, wink. <laughs> wink, wink, yeah. And uh, I don't know if he did remember or not, but he definitely, uh, he, but he said, you know, yeah, yeah, I think I know who you are and uh, come round, uh, have an interview and we hit it off. Uh, yeah, so that, that's how I, I ended up uh, doing my postdoc and this lab was in Amsterdam. Yeah, Coincide so is... Coincidentally, I was looking around Amsterdam a lot because uh, my then fiance was living here. 
So um, I, I, these other firms that I interviewed were also in Amsterdam. So I kind of focused my search geographically, but not um, scientifically, academically. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, I think that's an important part of it is uh, sometimes everyone on your CV, you don't have the personal side of it, but it's also an important part of our decisions in our careers. Like if your fiance is in Amsterdam and there's also a great lab in your field in Amsterdam, best of both worlds. So this is, I'm going to butcher their name as well, but uh, Ba Van Stienzel. Yeah, Bas van Stienzel. Uh, at the Netherlands Cancer Institute. Yeah. Um, and yeah, how how was your postdoc experience? Do you think you gained more skills um, on top of what you learned for PhD that were transferable as well? Uh, yeah, I mean, project management, this was a much larger project, a much more risky project. I was given the choice by this PI. He said, look, I have two, I'm, I'm thinking about doing two different things. There is this project, it's very standard, very kind of run-of-the-mill, boring, or we have this other project, which is just a crazy, crazy idea that I had. And I was like, I'm going for the crazy idea. Um, That's quite a big decision if you're thinking at that point that maybe you want to be a a PI and have your own lab, because I guess with the first project, you have quite guaranteed publications. Yes, correct. Uh, In the end, I did not get a publication from my postdoc. Uh, So yes, you're you're right in you can you can call it risky but even when i was interviewing with this pi um i i said i i want to have a postdoc that really interests me that motivates me that it has to align it has to get me out of bed in the morning and it's got to be interesting that other people want to know what it's about and how it's going it's got to be cool so during during your postdoc, you you were also part of this um, startup experience where where you made this startup gut yeah. feeling. Um, I have two questions. Well, firstly, um, yes. yeah, I'd like you to tell us more about that experience. But I'm also wondering, listening to how you had a bit of a risky project, was this partly you were starting to think, okay, maybe academia isn't the way I'm going to go. And this is a another option of gaining new skills by doing this startup. For sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this was at the end. This was towards the end of my fourth year, and I still had half a year left. I had to be be logical about this and said, okay, bigger picture. What am I good at? What do I like? And I I do like um, entrepreneurship and business and, and finances and invest investment investing. So um, the first thing was it was just a course actually, um, which uh, you can, it was basically a, a mock exercise in building a business. Okay. But we kind of went full, you know, uh, full steam ahead, and we 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 won. And then so this we is also, with this idea, this gut feeling idea. It wasn't even it wasn't even gut feeling at that point. It ah, was okay. Something similar. It was like about the microbiome it was actually much more disgusting it was to do with fecal samples and things but it was crazy and it was just let's say the idea was on paper but uh, we won some cash but we also won a free entry to an actual startup incubator ah okay so then we were like shall we do this so that was a couple of weeks of the crash course 
they, they get you in touch with mentors and you do pitches and revise your pitch and you get a lot of coaching. And basically at the end of a couple of weeks, you got to pitch and see if you can get some funding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and even though we did not end up having, you know, the, the, we didn't uh, uh, raise any funds. And then my co-founder, he got another job. This actually, this whole exercise to me opened a door, a, a glimpse behind startups, like about venture capital, venture builders. And in the end, I actually, when I was thinking, okay, the, the postdoc is probably now going is towards the last few months and it doesn't look like it. I'm going to get it. The startup didn't pan out either. So I, okay, I guess I'm going to go and try my luck in industry. The first places I interviewed were actually venture, venture capital, venture builders from some contacts that I made to the people that I had pitched my idea to. <laughs> so so I, I, I kind of got a glimpse of actually there's more about science in industry that isn't in the lab itself. Yeah. So so then I guess that led you to your current role, which is European product manager of high-end microscopy at Nikon. Yeah. yeah. So what does that really mean, product manager? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so we can break that title down because it's super long. Um, I work for Nikon Healthcare, which is a branch of Nikon Corporation, the giant Nikon Corporation that everybody knows for the cameras. Um, I work, so the healthcare part means uh, microscopes mainly, but there are some other instruments that are healthcare related that have um, optics inside. I work at the European headquarters, so I cover Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Uh, And uh, high-end microscopy means that I cover the portfolio of their instruments that have to do with uh, high-end types of microscopy. Um, So basically, not a lot of the clinical part, more of the academic part, fluorescence, hardcore, single molecule stuff. Which is, of course, very close to what I did my PhD in. Mm -hmm. And then your actual question, which was the product manager part, is the actual worst part to define or is the more complicated part to define? Um, A product manager is a very integral position uh, and you are kind of the cog in the middle of big other cogs. I don't know how to put this in a better term. So you are the intersection between the tech uh, the science, the R&D department. So you've got to kind of relay what is the science doing? What are people wanting in the market? What are researchers doing back to our factories and back to their design teams? You get specifications from what the design teams can actually build mm-hmm. and you have to test whether that makes sense for the market. Then you, of course, have the product and the marketing part. So what about the story? What is it? Uh, co- compared to other people making a similar product, what is it? What is it differential about this part? Then you have, of course, all the things to do with promotion, marketing, trade shows. You are basically the guy making the calls for one or a, a, a series of products in that territory. So when it comes to some products in the lineup. I am responsible for making sure that our sales teams have training on the science because they're not scientists, right? They are Mm. sales. So how can I explain to them? So this is, again, part of the outreach. They have to sell a product. 
and I know it's fantastic, but how does somebody who doesn't know the science sell to a scientist the product that they need? And you, I have to, you know, make sure that I can provide documentation, do do the product testing myself. So I get prototype, oh, okay. I, I get prototypes also. Um, if Nikon doesn't build something uh, ourselves, so the factories don't build this, is there a, a manufacturer in Europe, a third party that uh, is willing to work with us and maybe provide, uh, you know, a customized part that will fit onto our microscopes, which will then improve our microscopes in one particular way so now i get to say to our sales teams uh, you know we're going to lo- in, a, in a month we're going to go to uh, this conference we're going to launch this new thing our microscope is now able to do this new thing because we've par- partnered with this other company but of course you have no idea how to do this so let me teach you what this thing is what it does how does it work what are the limitations so this is the product manager part it's um very broad, but it touches many different parts. Yeah, no, I see it. It's like you're the, the expert in the, the microscopes themselves and trying yes. to link everyone together with your understanding of the, the microscope. Exactly. And, and you're the expert of the product because we have application specialists who will spend, you know, hours and hours and hours at the microscope and they're the ones who do the demonstrations for the customer. So they're like customer facing. I don't do that. Actually, there are application specialists who become even more experts than I than I will because of their sheer amount of repetition. And, and But I'm the one who has to teach them first um, mm-hmm. when I introduce something new. Uh, so it's really a, 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 a integrator communicator kind of role back and forth between factories end users, sales teams, marketing. Yeah. It's just a bunch of cross wires everywhere. Everything touches everything. Uh, so you have to you have to be really on top of it. Yeah, so um, what, what would a, a typical day look like? So it sounds very varied <laughs> and complicated, but could you, yeah. could you tell us like a, a typical day for you? Yeah, there is no typical day, which is part of what I like about it. Um, I did, no, no day is the same. I have days which are full-on office days, so I'm behind, you know, maybe I have 100 emails from the last week, so I got to kind of see, okay, what is the state of affairs in our factories, in our service, in our application? So it's just information download, keeping up to date with the market. What are our sales teams telling us? We have an issue here, we have an issue here, a small fire here and prioritizing. So I have basically information days, which is days of just gathering information about the state of affairs and figuring out plans to solve things uh, and prioritizing. And then I have days which are product testing. So I get prototypes or like I said, I collaborate with other companies. They send us stuff. We've got to figure out, is it integrated properly? Does it work with our software? Do we need to tell our software team that they're missing a button somewhere? so there are those days which are more technical and then you have coming now uh spring and summertime we have marketing season so conferences so i need to prepare materials slideshows presentations uh the marketing department will be like okay we have a booth what do you want to put in it okay okay i need to take 
I need to take this microscope, I need to take this thing, can I have a banner this size, I would like this picture, I would like this. So you start thinking about what would I want the story to look like around this picture. And then I think, okay, Ashley, does the conference have demonstrations? I need to get in touch with the application specialist, get in booked for that, get the service team booked for that, get the demo kits booked. So planning, I don't plan the entire uh, trade show, that's the marketing department, uh, but for that product, if especially for a launch, it's up to me to make sure that we have a, a, a really big launch, uh, an impactful launch. So it depends on what I'm focusing on, whether my day is one or the other. Um, so today was a, a office day. I, <laughs> I was at the office all day. Uh, but actually, there was less emails today. This was... Uh, documentation and preparation for uh, for product launch so I'm, I'm working okay. on a big product that i will launch in two weeks so all of this material that i have to be able to present to our sales teams and our, and our specialists has to be compiled so months of research has to be compiled into not a thesis but several documents yeah uh, so that people have reference material yeah, as you're talking, it makes me think of different parts of the PhD, like with your experience of the, being on the microscope and also preparing presentations, planning ahead your project, thinking about who you need to talk to, who has the specialty, like the marketing team. Um, yes, yeah, exactly. it's quite exciting. Like I and said, it's, 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 it's those parts of your postdoc or PhD that, that are at that point critical. And um, so one question we, we want to ask each person is uh, um, what, what are your roses and thorns? So what are the parts you enjoy most about your job and the parts you, you find more challenging or maybe with the biggest learning curves? So biggest learning curve is still the... I work for Nikon and Nikon is a huge corporation. So... I mean, there is a, such a tall hierarchical structure. So the learning curve is understanding, okay, so we have supply chain issues around the world and a war. And so that's affecting metal foundries, which is affecting the production line. So you, you don't think about this when you are a postdoc, but all of a sudden you have to have a global picture if you work specifically for products that are hardware type. So that's the, let's say, learning curve still, um, learning how to integrate much, much larger business. Uh, roses and thorns on the day-to-day -day, um, has to be teamwork, uh, for sure. Uh, when, when you're a postdoc, I did my postdoc in a large lab, I helped other people, other people helped me, but you still have your, each person has their project. Um, yeah, he, but academia is quite different from a lot of other, I imagine. I mean, I haven't left academia, but um, <laughs> it's very much like, this is my baby, this is my project. And Exactly, yeah, yeah. So as a product manager, no, I mean, if there is an issue with these products, don't get me wrong, everybody reminds you that you are the product manager when something goes wrong, okay? So it is on you to fix it. So I have my own things, but I can get nothing done. By myself, I, I don't have the capacity to move stock. I don't have the capacity to fix it. I don't I, I don't go to the customer site. I don't sell anything. I don't talk to the final customer. So everything that I do, which has an impact, has to go through some other people. And so at that point, mm -hmm. 
you can be the best, you can have the best information or you could have done the best tests. And if you don't communicate properly, it, it stops there. So the roses and thorns is I get to multiply my impact by hundreds of people, thousands of people, right? That's the roses part. The thorns part is that I need to move massive machinery. I need to move all the cogs. I'm just this tiny cog in the middle. And when I turn, I have to move all the other cogs with me. Yeah, so it seems like a, a balance of both things. Like you have this amazing team and amazing people around you, but also you have to really hone those skills of communication and and yeah. working working smoothly with people. Yeah, you're like if if this was like an engine, you're you're like the fuel, but without the rest of the car, without the engine, nothing moves. Like you're just you're just you have the potential, but you need everybody. Uh, mm -hmm. And when things are working, everybody loves it. I mean, the product sells, we're getting orders, uh, people are happy, customers are happy. They are like in social media singing your praises. And they don't sing my praises because they never see me. They they actually, you know, they they say, oh, you know, this particular sales person is fantastic. But I see that, I, I see what's, I, I see what's kind of the, what's going on and the, the, the outcome of all the, all the work. And... Also, so as well as your, your role at Nikon, we haven't talked about it so much, but you, you mentioned that you're on the side also a Bitcoin consultant. Are you, also oh, yeah. lo are you looking for, for people to work with? Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, the consultancy part is uh, on, on me. So at the moment, it, I'm running this just by myself. So I'm not looking to, uh, say, expand that part. Um, uh, I don't think I could manage. I've just recently become a father, so congratulations! Thank you so much. Uh, if you hear any, if you if you hear any screaming throughout the entire thing, maybe she she was um, screaming in the background. So uh, yes, uh, for that part, uh, I'm, I'm 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 set. But I am looking for anybody with an entrepreneurial kind of vein who is interested in the space or knows the space and also shares. Uh, good or decent enough programming skill like I have um, where we could uh, start doing something along those lines. I mean, you you really have to like the subject or at least be interested in the subject. Uh, but yes, of course, you can you can always reach out to me and I'm, I'm interested in, in partnering with that. Nice. That's an exciting. I look forward to seeing what happens with that side as well. Yeah. Um... So I think, yeah, thanks. You've given us a pretty nice overview of your your day-to-day -day work. Um, yeah. And I I want to, yeah, use your experience to get a bit of advice for for younger PhD students or people who are still in academia. What what would be your advice for them? I mean, I have a lot of advice and I don't, I don't think all of it is good or good for everybody. <laughs> Try us. <laughs> uh, I, I would say pay yourself first or think about yourself first not in a selfish way but think about this is what we had what we talked about at the start of our conversation just step back from the technicalities and from the protocols and think about what is it that you're doing right now or this phd or the roles that you are thinking about doing and how is that going to make you grow uh, so how is that paying you in the long run like sure you're going to get a phd you'll You'll change your you'll change your title, and then no airline is ever going to use it anyway, so it doesn't matter. But um, in the long run, like you're not going to be pipetting forever, so you're going to do something else with your life. 
Uh, even if you want to stay in academia, you become a postdoc, then you start writing more grants, and then you become a PI, and you're pretty much writing grants and mentoring, and you're almost never at the lab anymore. So mm-hmm. all of that technical work, you never actually get to practice anymore. So see the bigger picture of your life, and maybe take a take a, a I don't know take a break, take a week off from experiments. Like you, it's really difficult when you are like in the experiment mindset to just say. Well, actually, I need to think about things that are not experiments. Things about where where do where do these experiments and this PhD fit into the rest of where I want my life to to go? Yeah. Um. So on that note, uh, something you wanted to also ask all our guests is, do you do you believe in this five year plan or more go with the flow? Oh, planning, planning all the way. I I I always say you know. Failure to plan is planning to fail. I'm a, I love planning. Planning is fantastic. I believe in five-year plans, 10-year plans, 20-year Like I think planning should be uh, recursive, fractally recursive down to every morning. Um, I have a post, I have a, a post-it note here. I draw uh, 16 squares and this is my day. I just write the hours and I just plan at the start of my day. I just kind of even though I have Google Cal- I have Google Calendar and I have whatever, this is a post-it pad that I only use for planning my day, and it helps me tremendously. So, plan. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, you're a planner. Five-year plan. Yes, for sure. So we're we're coming to the near the end of our interview, but um, I wanted to ask more kind of practical questions and um questions about keeping connected so if if someone's listening and they've they've heard your job description they think it sounds pretty cool maybe it's something for them they can see that in their future how how would they go about um applying for a similar role to you at, at nikon or generally um i i i think i omitted this when we talked about um how I landed the job at, at Nikon, there was no vacancy for my role. I just contacted Nikon and I said, oh. hi, I'm a great microscopist and I'm looking for a role like this. This is my CV. Um, I, I wrote a, a nice cover letter with, you know, these are my interests. I'm into this, this and that, entrepreneurship, all of this. So I like business, I like science, I like microscopy. I'm a great communicator. I gave them who I was and I said, I think you're a great company and you make cool products and I would like to be a part. Is there anything where I could add value? I I think I could add value. And they said, thank you very much. No. (laughs) Uh, And uh, there isn't at the moment. Uh, But... There may be in the future. I think at that point, uh, HR knew that some vacancies will be open uh, soon. Okay. And so they said, can we keep your CV? And I said, sure. And they actually contacted me a few months later. Mm. So oh, nice. I would say another piece of advice is you have a PhD. Be confident. You will get a job. I mean, you are so valuable. I mean, be, besides the technical part, you can, if you can speak to a room full of tens or hundreds of people, I mean, not everybody can do that. And you've have, you've have been forced to do that a lot. So that's a skill. 
you have written thousands and thousands of words and have the capacity to read thousands and thousands of words and get the key in, uh, uh, information. That's all super valuable. So don't get discouraged um, that you know, you're not finding a role where you get to work with this particular protein, which is the only protein that you know about. Life is bigger and you, uh, people find you very valuable. So you are, you are able and you, you should just tell people, hey, this is me. I think you're a great company. Let me know if, if, if we can work something together. And I think people, uh, they appreciate that. Hmm. Okay. And, and, uh, yeah, it seems like it, it's good to just reach out and, and even if it's a no now, it might be a yes in a, in a few months time. Yeah. Or, or even they, they may pass it on to somebody else. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks. Um, so for, for your Bitcoin, but also for just in general, um, how can, how can people get in touch with you if they, they want to connect? Well, the direct way would be to email me. So, uh, info at uh, easybitcoin.com would be the one that goes straight to my, one of my inboxes. Um, or you can go to the website and, uh, fill in the contact form. Uh, alternatively I'm on LinkedIn. So Easy Myron or Ezekiel Myron. Um, yeah, I, I guess you have the information. I don't know. You can put it down. Yeah, somewhere we can put people it, can find it. We can put it in the, the description. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you. I think that's that's to the end of our interview, but I've, I've really learned a lot. I came into this not knowing what a product manager was. Thanks for all the advice and thanks for being one of our first guests. Oh, I'm, I'm privileged. Thank you very much. Thanks. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of Dr. What Now. Do you want more episode updates or want to get in contact with us? Dr. What Now is on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram with the handle at Dr. Underscore what Now, and on our website, www.drwhatnow.com. We're always looking for more guests to invite, so get in touch. See, See you, you next time. time.